Get a quote at AAA.com slash insurance and save by bundling auto and home. There is no Darwin Barney three home run game in, in anybody's future. <laughs> I got my swear in la- I got my swear in last time and I I'm I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> oh yeah, they picked up Tom Kohler. <laughs> yeah, that was such a huge move. I thought we should start with it. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, episode number 71, for those times when you lose your no-hitter in the 10th inning on a walk-off home run. I'm your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined tonight by Josh Housem. Josh, how you doing? Better than Rich Hill. Uh, inevitably better than Rich Hill. <laughs> so, I... Uh, we have a couple things to talk about this week, which is pretty abysmal in terms of the Blue Jays' hopes, chances, and everything else. But there are always a couple bright spots to talk about. Um, and then we have um, some loose ends that we've left kind of dangling there. Uh, and, and we're going to get those because this team is unraveling. <laughs> we also have an interview with Dr. Mike Sun. Uh, we're going to talk about fatigue units and stuff like we normally do and 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 uh get some specifics as the season has gone on there uh we got your questions we got a do-over because what would umpires be without do-overs <laughs> where to begin josh should we begin in chicago i guess <laughs> <laughs> how many wins more than zero did the jays end up with in the windy city this is an undefined answer <laughs> Uh, no, we're not dividing. It's just zero. <laughs> just straight up zero. Uh, yeah, not a, not a sausage. <laughs> Nothing. It's bad. That's what it. What, the answer is bad. Bad. So, um, I guess Sunday afternoon's disappointment was the great disappointment, but uh, there wasn't a lot to cheer about in the first two games either. No, there really wasn't. I mean, the Cubs are a better team, and you know, at, at some point, you just have to say okay you lost in games to a better team but that Sunday game especially was heartbreaking because it was theirs to win it, it, they didn't get beaten they just gave the game away and it was probably the most 2017 depressing Blue Jays <laughs> loss of the season what, what were the low lights for you really in that final frame uh, I think it just has to be the fact that two runners reached space on strikeouts one in inning okay fine but the second one was not only the, uh, the second one that they didn't block that one either, but he picks up the ball, looks at Zoberson third, and just seemed to forget that he had to get, get, get the guy out at first base. That was the winning run. Uh, Rafi Lopez is not everybody's favorite uh, backup catcher right now. But to be fair to Rafi Lopez, he should be nowhere near a major league team in any reasonable team season, should he? No, no, that definitely not. And that well, he's got a home run today randomly, but yeah, he's he's not a guy that should be on the team, and that's just been the story of the Jays' season, really. Aside from underperformance, it's been injury. Yeah, 
I mean, we are we are five or six deep into catchers. I mean, like like technically we're Seven? six, <laughs> uh, but I mean we're including two guys who were trying to fill the, the same role, like oh, Mele and and Saltalamakia. So I don't, you know, they got rid of one to get the other. So I don't know if you're really moving down the depth chart or not um, in that respect. Uh, but nevertheless, it's been a rotating door kind of thing. And and of all people, Miguel Montero has as many walks as all of the other guys combined. When, like, they're not just bad hitters. They're just, they're just bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I promised. So that was the first three games of the four game losing streak. Uh, and then they went into the trop last night and they kept trying to make a game of it. They failed again and i think that's the sad truth of this particular incarnation of the blue jays is as much as we would all like a team to be uh, i i think we're really moving from mediocre to bad here i've been trying to insist they're mediocre all year but i'm starting to think that this is just a bad baseball team well to be mediocre don't you have to play a single game at 500 (laughs) exactly yeah and I mean, there's a lot of people who would tell you, I, I had sort of a, a back and forth on, on Twitter with a few people going, well, they, you know, it could have gone well for them, but, but should it have gone well for them? No. <laughs> like for every unlucky break that you could point to and go, oh, but for a hit there and a hit there, um, I, there could be a whole bunch of other lucky breaks that they've had where they did get a hit here and a hit there. Um, that there's, you know, there's no reason that, that. The J- there's no reason to demonstrate the Jays have been particularly unlucky, is what I'm saying. Yeah, there. I mean, there are some things that James G has pointed out, just in terms of their their batting average on line drives is well down. They're also not hitting the balls hard, and they're very slow. <laughs> they have guys that hit into shifts all the time. You know, there's a lot of things that with the construction of the team which have led to these decreased numbers. So, I think that there's probably more truth to what you're saying than not truth yeah i mean yeah all of those things whether they're lucky or unlucky they they usually luck sort of balances out somewhere and their run differential is the third worst in the american league so they're they're actually lucky to be as looking as good as they are aren't they in like the fourth or third worst record in the league (laughs) (laughs) um given that given all that trouble there are some bright spots one of them is the uh Resurgence of that Josh Donaldson that we really know and love. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing what that guy did over the span of basically the first half of August. He was having a an objectively, well, for him, bad season. You know, his OPS, it's, a, it's not a great stat, but it works as a reference point. Had dropped down into the 780s, I believe, or 770s at one point. You know, his numbers were considerably worse than Ezekiel Carrera's. Yeah. And then now he's right up there with Justin Smoke. He's uh, in the 920s, and he's just been absolutely scorching. Home run after home run after home run. He has another one today. In the We're recording this Wednesday. And, and, and not, you know, he had, uh, he had missed some time, so it's easier for him to drag those numbers up. But not, I, I don't mean to do that to diminish them. It's just why does that seem like it's impossible for anybody else to do? Number one, he, he is moving on a you know a smaller sample but number two he played absolutely out of his mind for two and a half weeks 
which which bodes both well and not well for for Blue Jays going into the offseason, right? Because we're looking at, hey, yes, Josh Donaldson is still a guy, like a you know a guy, but he's going to cost some money. Yeah, that was sort of the weird silver lining to all of this. Like, oh, Aaron Sanchez out all season with blisters, Donaldson having a down year. And it's like, well, those guys are going to arbitration, so at least they may be able to save some. Yeah, well, not so much of Donaldson anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Going to be a tough case to make. Uh, Yeah, and now you're back. Shortstop Josh Donaldson. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Let's talk about shortstop Josh Donaldson. We didn't even even go there in Chicago. Uh, John Gibbons obviously just... He's at the why the heck not stage of the season. Is is that that's my conclusion anyway? <laughs> I, I think it's part that, and it's like somebody's got to hit the damn ball. Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't care how many outs we make in the field if we don't hit it. Who cares? Well, yeah, and I think you're right because the Blue Jays they they don't do a good job turning balls in play into outs. You know, even if they're optimal. So I mean, if you're going to be bad at it, be really bad at it and try and <laughs> try and score some runs. Yeah, I think that kind of, that's what it came down to. It's like these guys, we had a question about this last week, I think. These defensive specialists were not even playing good defense. I was like, well, <laughs> if that's the case, let's just put the guys that mash. Yeah, yeah, even though Jose Bautista has still not managed to mash, um, you know, it's it's at least worth a, a crack at it. it. I mean, it's it's in Jose Bautista's history that he could he could get hot and hit a few home runs. It, there's no Rob Snyder power surge coming. There is no... There is no Darwin Barney three home run game in, in anybody's future. <laughs> He's no Scooter Jeanette. No, no, that's a, a fish of a different color. Um, so, saying? No, it's not <laughs> a saying. <laughs> okay. It's twenty seventeen Blue Jays. That's not a thing. We we're going to mention Justin Smoke and his continued excellence. Yeah, sure. Why not? He's got another home run today in a Blue Jays win. They just won as we're recording this. They actually have a win during our podcast frame now. I'm going to choose to believe that you're lying to me and not check the score. <laughs> well, that would usually be the safer play. <laughs> uh, yeah, Smoke, not slowing down. And hey, he's not going to arbitration next year. Woo! <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I do think, okay, There, we wrote a piece of this, Matt, Matt Gwynn and I. I looked at some mechanical changes he's made. He looked at the historical, you know, seasons that he comps to with his contact rates, and it's actually it actually bodes well for the future. But at the same time, I, I worry a little bit about going into 2018 with, like, well, we can count on Justin Smoke to be producing again. Yeah, I don't think you, you look at Justin Smoke as – well, I, I think it's a lot like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if people have noticed. I'm sure that some people have. But there's a lot of guys who break out when they get to Toronto, you know, a, a little bit or a lot. When you look back at Bautista and Cardassian, Donaldson was already an MVP caliber player, but he couldn't in the cavernous Oakland Stadium really show his power. So he gets to Toronto and he gets to show off his power. Um, I think that the evidence is usually okay the first year could be a fluke the team doesn't take that for granted but um if they can follow through with that second year yeah you're looking absolutely at a, at a guy who now you're gonna have to give some money to to, to keep him around um and I, I could live with that really 
Yeah. Thankfully, uh, in this case, though, just he has an option for 2019, so we don't even have to give him that money. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's a, that's the best news I've heard all day. Other than the Blue Jays apparently won a game. Shall we? Shall right. we move on to our loose ends? They do need to be tied up. All right. We will. I will start with the movie Fastball because we talked about the documentary Fastball uh, a few podcasts ago, and we've decided now, everyone, you've had time to watch it and now we're going to spoil it for you (laughs) (laughs) we gave him like a month yeah i think that's fair it's only an hour long (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the conclusion of fastball the documentary was that the fastest pitch ever thrown was in a game by nolan ryan who threw a, a baseball 108 miles per hour um way back I don't even remember what the year was. Sometime in the 70s. 73 or something like that. In the ninth inning of a game. It was one of the last pitches he threw. Uh, and it was being measured from a, a radar contraption up in the broadcast booth. So I, th- that was a conclusion that the, the makers of the film and the scientists who they recruited came to. That, first of all, a lot of the pitches over history were not as far apart in velocity, perhaps, as, as it would originally led you to believe. And second, that Nolan is the king, even faster than Rawls Chapman. And you had some concerns about that. I did. There were some methodology issues. Method, whatever. Those. <laughs> methodology issues. <laughs> so the way that they did this was they looked at where that radar gun was measuring the pitch, which it, I think it clocked at 98.6, and then took it to the modern standard, which is 50 feet or 55 feet now at the time of the documentary. It was 50, but the issue I had with that is that it assumed accuracy with this radar gun being shot from the broadcast booth. Even modern radar guns are not always accurate. As many-time podcast guest Jesse Goldberg-Strassler has said, the Lansing radar gun is consistently two miles an hour hot, no matter what they try to do to calibrate it. So... I think it's really hard to believe, given everything we have now, and given the increase in radar technology, that Nolan Ryan was throwing three miles an hour faster than Aroldis Chapman. Um, so I could see why you're saying that, and, and I would certainly love more data to show how fast Nolan Ryan was throwing, like real data. But in, in lieu of real data, I would say that to assume that Aroldis Chapman is the fastest thrower ever just because we have the ability to measure him seems um, it seems rough on those people who may have been throwing very, very hard in the past. You know what I'm saying? That's not what I'm doing, though. I'm not, I'm not saying that he, he ne- wasn't ever throwing harder than Chapman, but we're talking about a guy in Chapman who is an extreme outlier as far as history goes with you know, modern measurement tools. So the odds of a guy being another two or three miles an hour beyond him just seem crazy to me. I just can't I can't fathom that when a guy is this far above the rest of the population that there'd be someone that far above him. And I would say that everything about Nolan Ryan's career is absolutely crazy. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise me nearly as much. Would you like me to read to you a passage from Ron Luciano, the umpire, um, that he wrote back in 1982 for Sports Illustrated? I I don't think my answer is necessary. Go for it. <laughs> um, Luciano recounts calling balls and strikes with Nolan Ryan on the mound, or trying to but failing. 
I was immediately impressed, but not overwhelmed. Not until the fourth inning. In that inning, he went into his fluid windup, reared back, and fired. Until the pitch reached home plate, it looked like a very good, but normal, rising fastball. Then suddenly, it exploded. A million specks of shiny white cover blinded me. I closed my eyes to protect myself. I waited for the roar of the crowd. Nobody else noticed it. I blinked, tried to shake the flash out of my eyes, and called it a strike. Must have been my imagination, I thought, and I put it out of my mind. But a few innings later, bam, the same thing happened. The baseball actually exploded. Nolan Ryan, I, he was a legendary fastball guy. I mean, if you told me he threw a little bit harder than Chapman, I would have no issue with that. It just, like I said before, it's this so far above him that the way that they treated it as gospel, I don't accept. So, but you would accept that if someone came along and told you that the likelihood was that Nolan Ryan really did throw the hardest fastball ever within a certain range, though just not necessarily to tag it with 108 mile an hour because of one pitch. Yeah, I, if someone tells me the fastest pitch ever thrown was by Nolan Ryan, I have no reason to doubt that. Just because everything we saw about his performance suggests he threw harder than anybody at the same time. All right, fair enough. So you you uh, you doubt their math, but but the the general feeling is that he probably was throwing at least as hard as Araldis Chapman. Yeah, I accept that he certainly could have been. That that's basically the way the way yeah. I fall on that one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we had another mention of the golden sombrero a couple of weeks ago, and we did it was just to... last week. Was it last week? Yeah. And I, it upset me, the Golden Sombrero. <laughs> I don't know why I get upset about the weirdest things. I'm pretty I'm pretty laid back about a lot of things. Yeah, baseball's a weird game, so if you can't get upset about the weird things, then what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. So we all accept that three strikeouts is a hat trick. I think I think we're all on the same page there, yes? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, that, that's it. Uh, okay, so we okay. Let's roll it back. In hockey or soccer, we accept the three goals is a hat trick. <laughs> yes. Okay. So three of something in baseball that you would do a fair amount of would be three strikeouts. Um, so we could call it a hat trick as a slang term. I'll let you finish your thought. <laughs> so if we were to make it worse and to get a fourth one, we would have. A bigger hat trick, which you'd only have to call a sombrero because it's like a big hat. And I remember in the 1990s when I was watching the Blue Jays that and it was against Nolan Ryan, strangely enough, that people picked up a sombrero, the four strikeout performance. And then someone had a particularly bad night somewhere in the league and they were laughing. And I think it was it was still Buck Martinez at that point because he's been calling Jays games on and off forever. Um, was a golden sombrero was five strikeouts. And that made perfect sense to me. But somewhere the sombrero disappeared in history and I have no idea where it went. Yeah, now the sombrero, when people say that, that's what you're calling a hat trick. Which no, basically no. I guess the idea was like a hat trick is supposed to be a good thing. And a sombrero, it's like a silly thing. Well, no, so it's a... I, I looked this up, though, and, and they say that the term uh, from baseball 
the golden sombrero is striking out four times officially on wikipedia whatever but it says that the origin of the term the term derives from hat trick and since four is bigger than three so three strikeouts should just be a hat trick why would it be a sombrero <laughs> interestingly so that link on that wikipedia it references a baseball reference page on the golden sombrero which does not say what you just said <laughs> It says the golden sombrero comes from the hockey's hat trick, three goals in a game. Thus, a batter who strikes out three times in a game is said to wear the sombrero. The word in Spanish refers to any type of hat, type of hat but in popular culture it is associated with unwieldy hats worn by stereotypical cartoon Mexicans. More grand than a hat would be a sombrero that is gold. It's awarded to any player who strikes out four times in a game. But back on the base, the Wikipedia page, it says in the past, the term was occasionally used to describe when a player struck out three times in a baseball game. And the term golden sombrero was more commonly used when a player struck out four times in a game. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm not doubting no. your your view of it and where what you heard from Buck Martinez is. I'm sure that was the case, but I like it better as it is now. OK, I think we can all agree that the horn is the greatest thing ever. Do you know what a player does if he has a horn? I don't. He has struck out six times in one game, as Sam Horn did. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. You gotta wear the horn. I'm 100% in favor of calling it that every single time someone strikes out six times in a game. So, just on this topic, if you had to say, who has the most modern golden sombreros out of someone who has ever worn a Blue Jays uniform? Oh, worn a Blue Jays uniform. Jose Canseco? Yeah, so the most ever... Ah, well done. Got it in one. <laughs> the most ever is Ryan Howard. But for, for Blue Jays players, it was Mr. Canseco. I saw Howard on the list at 27, and I, I thought, woof. But I didn't actually read the list because I was trying to find uh, some other link. I just skimmed it. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, will, I will take 100% credit. I, I even answered the 10 Blue Jays home run trivia on Twitter tonight correctly both times. Who hit nice. three home runs in the game? Where the Wait, Blue Jays hit I'm... ten home runs. Oh, was it Wit? Yes. Who hit yeah. two? Someone else I don't hit remember. two. <laughs> Rance Mullenix hit two, and I remember that for some obscure reason. So here's a here's a fun one. So on the list of the your version of the sombrero. Or the golden sombrero. I don't know which one we're dealing with. But three strikeouts. There are two Blue Patrick. Jays that fall in the top twelve. One of them? Good old Melvin Upton. <laughs> 105 times he struck out three times in a game. Um, all of them were looking. It's a <laughs> fun fact. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and then the other thing was uh, Bobcat. Uh, Bob McCowan of Fan590. Now, we were talking about him and listening to him. Um, there's a question yeah about who we listen to on Toronto Sports Radio was that the question that's it now do, do, were you a, a Bobcat listener or no yes what are your feelings about his, his radio uh, skills I think he's an excellent interviewer alright that's about it and he's on when I was driving home <laughs> I think he is uh I think he is performing the role of baseball curmudgeon or sports sports curmudgeon with 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 so much dedication over such a number of years that he's lost himself in the role. 
uh, he's not alone in that category in Toronto. But he he's the best at it of all the, the guys because <laughs> he's very, very upset but uh, that he's begrudgingly been required to weigh in on something that apparently someone jammed a remote into his hand and turned onto his TV every week, weekend, evening, whatever else. He's always forever insisting he didn't watch very much of. And then they talk about it for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. So I think when he goes home, he takes off his sunglasses and he's like jumping up and down on the couch <laughs> and he's in like full jerseys of whatever football team he loves. And then in the morning he gets up and he looks in the mirror and he puts the sunglasses back on and he psychs himself down <laughs> so he can go on the radio <laughs> and for three hours be unimpressed with the existence of sports <laughs> like every day i don't want to follow that because that's just perfect just leave it <laughs> <laughs> oh wow all right so that covers the week and uh, a few of our loose ends um did you want to talk about anything specific about Larry Walker? Because I have Larry Walker here, and I, I didn't write down any statistics about Larry Walker. And I feel like that. He should was... be in the Hall of Fame. That's what I want to say. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm trying to think about if there's anyone we actually know who we could influence. Like, could we get Jeff Blair to vote for Larry Walker? Is he voting for him? He already is. He's already a vote for him. So we can't really yeah. help there. Same with Griffin. All right. We got to find some people not voting for Larry Walker. And, we're gonna be like the really watered down version of Jonah Carey. Oh yeah, we're we're Jonah Carey light light. <laughs> it's yeah. our level of influence. Uh, yeah, Larry Walker Hall of Fame 2018. I, I I think it can still happen. We're gonna go talk to Dr. Mike Sun about uh, something completely unrelated to Larry Walker and any of the other things we've already talked about. Uh, Roberto Osuna and how he might be fatigued. We'll be right back. And we're pleased to be joined once again by Dr. Mike Sun of both BP Toronto and Rotographs. Uh, Dr. Sun, welcome back to Artificial Turf Wars. Thank you for having me once again. So we, we would like to dig deep into some of the metrics that you've been working on, uh, you've come up with, tried to come up with some way of, of measuring stuff. We know about that because you do the stuff report for us at, at BP Toronto, but you also have gotten into, and, and we talked about this last time, but I feel it's been a while. So should we, we should review fatigue units or FU, which I, is a great abbreviation if I didn't say that the last <laughs> time. Uh, what is an FU? <laughs> Uh, a fatigue unit, or an FU, uh, is not just a greeting that you use when you see somebody you don't like or they're wearing a Red Sox fan uh, hat, um, but uh, fatigue units <laughs> are an attempt to physiologically represent workload in pitchers. Uh, we know that the research has indicated, uh, looking at purely innings pitched, uh, looking at purely uh, uh total pitch counts in games and those types of traditional metrics you know the 100 pitch uh, limit they don't really uh, correlate with injury or lead to prediction of any sort of, of injury in pitchers so uh, there's some research done they found that uh, you know the risk factors for Tommy John surgery included having reduced days between uh, appearances uh, increased velocity uh, 
the um, horizontal release point, I think, was another one in there. But I tried to kind of combine all of these known risk factors into one metric, and it does kind of weigh heavily to show that relief pitchers are a little bit more at risk because of the fact that they are working on consecutive days a lot of times or working, you know, on two days rest. Uh, they don't get that uh, that standard four days, and then they, they pitch again. It, they could be up, warming up one day. Uh, they could be pitching three days in a row. Uh, they don't really know. So it tried to kind of take all of those things and then at the end of the day I found that the people who had uh, really extreme so 90th percentile and above uh, fatigue units they were almost double uh, the risk of having Tommy John surgery in either the next year or the year after that when compared to somebody who had a moderate workload level so we've now, seen um, a few different red flags from roberto osuna so I, I we've seen his stuff decrease if if i'm not mistaken and then that that might tie into his fatigue units as it were yeah and just kind of touching a little bit on like the stuff report and uh the last one that went out today uh his stuff has always been like amongst some of the best in in baseball like he had elite stuff and this year his stuff has completely fallen off a cliff and if you compare uh his stuff from 2015 and 2016 he was averaging you know above mid 95 so 95.5 95.7 miles an hour with his fastball and his four seamers dropped down to 94.8 now uh so he's almost a mile an hour different uh, with his peak fastball velocity but then if you watch the games it's like he has completely shunned throwing the four seam fastball and he's completely obsessed with this cutter which is like an 89 to 91 mile an hour pitch and big league hitters can kind of crush that kind of mediocre velocity if it's not put in the right spot now in addition to his velocity being down He's uh, he's not changing speeds, so uh, that's another thing the stuff metric takes into consideration is his change in velocity, and he could change his velocity by almost 14% in 2015, close to 10% in 2016, and he's down to 8%, and he's also getting about 3 inches less separation between his pitches. So less velocity in a tight cluster, that's a pretty bad recipe uh, to, to get smashed with respect to his stuff. And then that's obviously as a Jason. We've been seeing this all season long. We've talked about on this podcast how he was throwing a bunch of two seamers early, and his fastball was down. Now it's all these cutters. Now, this change in the the usage, would you say that's sort of a symptom uh, necessarily of the injuries or of the fatigue or all of that, or is that just something that potentially he's just doing because of the reduced velocity? Um, I got in a conversation on Twitter with Kyle Bodie, who's from Driveline Baseball, and I kind of said, you know, oh, it's a great mystery why, uh, you know, somebody would stop throwing their four-seamer when it was so good. And he responded right away saying, yeah, the answer for that is not a good thing. And he kind of knows his way around baseball and baseball injuries and pitching biomechanics. So that wasn't a, a great thing to hear. Um, now, with respect to his like workload and whether or not he's hurt, I think there's probably a red flag in his history that there might be something mechanically. And when I say that, I mean like it could be an internal thing, just the way his bone structure is or how his ligaments are attached. Uh, that would be a red flag for increased risk of an elbow injury. And 
that's that internal side, but then maybe there's something with how he throws that's putting more stress on his elbow. If he's already had Tommy John surgery, that's a pretty big predictor for another Tommy John surgery. So, And he had one when he was 17, and he's 22 now. So it was only five years ago. And in that time, you know, between 17 and 22, he has uh, the second most fatigue units accumulated uh, before their age 23 season in the pitch FX era. And that's Madison Bumgarner was number one. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was number three. Rick Porcello, Tim Collins, Trevor Cahill, they all had huge workloads before uh, age 23. The biggest difference is that Osuna has appeared in like 195 games and all the other guys were starters. So this is completely uncharted territory when it comes to trying to understand what risk factors at play to, you know, is Osuna hurt? Is he just being overworked uh, and he just needs a breather? Um, It's tough to say what exactly is going on. And how much are factors that play into his limited minor league work? Well, I think the interesting thing there is is coming back to the amount of days of, of rest between uh, his appearances. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but was he not a starter uh, when he came he was. up like, in Vancouver? So, yep. I mean, that's, you know, that's one thing. So he kind of got thrust into this relief role with really no relief experience. Uh, so that was a, a something that was a big change. Um, and, you know maybe that was masking some of these other effects because he was, you know, being gently eased into it. He had the Tommy John surgery. He was being rehabbed. And then all of a sudden it's like all systems go, this guy's going, uh, this guy's, you know, putting up some of the craziest workloads that we've seen as a, uh, as a relief pitcher in baseball in the past, uh, the past three seasons. Yeah, that's obviously, <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds a little ominous, but uh, I guess we should move away from the, the scary <laughs> the talk about vertebrados, you know. Now, when it comes to fatigue units, he's not the only guy on this team who's got heavy workloads. Ryan Tapera is, he seems to be way up there. And Ryan, yeah, he's got a huge, he's got a huge workload this season. Uh, and it's, you know, he's kind of become this year's Joe Biagini in the sense that he's one of the few guys that was getting people out. So they had to keep calling on him early in the season. So yeah, go ahead. Um, in that respect, um, our as a league average, it is, um, it, you know, is John Gibbons bad at handling a bullpen, or does he have a a bullpen that only has enough people in it that he has to be, how should we put it, cruel in order to win baseball games? Is it... Yeah, that's a that's a tough question, and I, I forget. I was debating this with a friend the other day, and they were saying, you know, he's Gibbons is really putting these guys through the the ringer. But at the same time, like Gibby's there to win games, right? Uh, and if he doesn't win games in a given year, chances are he's going to lose his job. So he's got to get the guys that can get the outs. And it's not little league, or it's not the tri league. It's the do league, as uh, some MVP once said. Uh, I probably screwed that up, but you get the yep. idea. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It, like he's got to he's got to get people out, right? Like they've got to find ways to to get 27 outs and and more runs than the other team. And when you've got guys like J.P. Howell and, uh, you know, uh, Jason Gurley this year, <laughs> you know, yeah, these guys are getting shelled and they, they couldn't be counted on to get a single out, let alone, you know, finish off a game. And when that happens, you know, 
that's what you're left with. You've got two, three guys that can can really get after it and get people out. And Tapera, Danny Barnes, uh, you know, Osuna, Dominic Leone, they're putting up really big workload seasons this year. Uh, and it, it's indicative of them being really good and then the starting pitching being really bad. And I don't think there's anything you can really fault uh, Gibby for in that sense. Yeah, that seems like a good sum. <laughs> I'm going to take this to a, back to your stuff metric because, as you mentioned, your stuff report, your latest one came up on BP Toronto this morning. We're recording this Wednesday. And there's an interesting note you made in there about the variability in Marco Estrada's stuff. Basically, when he throws a pitch, his curveball, his stuff rating shoots up because of the, you know, the difference in velocity and the break and all of that. When you're looking at stuff and potentially trying to correlate it to red flags with injuries, how do you account for things like that just by looking at the general metric? So I've had a couple different theories on it. And, you know, last year there was a bit of attention to the stuff metric in the Toronto Star because right before it came out that uh, Estrada had the herniated disc, his stuff dropped like four weeks in a row. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's a, a red flag there. But now looking back on it, it it's more just because he stopped using that curveball. And when I did the evaluation to look at variability and stuff and how it related to injury, what I found was having more variability was associated with that increased risk of injury. And I'm not 100% sure if that's a matter of, you know, you've got a pitcher that uh, is trying different things strategically because they just can't get comfortable because maybe they do have an injury. Um, or if it's, if it's a matter of their variabilities all over the place because one day they've got high velocity because it doesn't hurt and then another day their velocity is down uh, because, you know, they are hurting. So there's a few different theories. Sometimes it's, it's more about performance relationships and the others, you know, they're just struggling to, to figure out ways to, to get around stuff and or get around, you know, an injury or get around um, – you know, their inability to get people out and then they start doing things that are outside of their skill set and then you know they end up getting hurt so given all of the things that go into a pitcher being successful or not successful over the long term do you ever think that the, the general public will have enough information to, to predict that with any any confidence like Baseball's in a, a pretty cool era right now where the data is so accessible. Um, I don't think we're ever going to really see uh, anything more than maybe pitch count showing up on the screen, but uh, it would probably be uh, useful to just kind of put it in relationship of this is how many times, you know, Osuna's pitched on back-to-back -back days. And uh, this is how many times, you know, he's only had two days of rest. And this is the number of times he's pitched three days in a row. Those would be kind of interesting things to just kind of put the workload of a relief pitcher in the in the same uh, in the same breath as, you know, somebody throwing 220 innings. You know, that's great that Justin Verlander does that. That's great that Marcus Stroman is putting up 200 innings. And I saw on Twitter the other day where somebody was criticizing, you know, me saying that he... Osuna had huge workloads because he's only had pitched 70 innings. Yeah, he's pitched 70 innings, but he's also pitched, you know, three days in a row, 10 times in a season. That's really hard on the body. And, you know, the research shows that. I, I'm just thinking that, you know, we, we can tell what physically happened on the field. We can have an idea, but how a guy's feeling is probably something we're never going to get out of the team um, in any meaningful way. 
No, and I, you know, I interviewed a guy from the Modus company um, who does the sleeve that tracks, you know, workload in pitchers' arms. I said, are you concerned with teams maybe trying to gain access to some of these data and then use them in arbitration hearings or in contract hearings? And he said, that's not something that I really thought of. So maybe I was thinking of, uh, you know, something a little bit more sinister. But uh, I think, you know, it's great to have all these data that can say, you know, we think Justin Smoke's going to be on the verge of a breakout. But the flip side of that is, you know, people saying, we're not going to give this guy any uh any long-term contract because he saw this velocity dip in this part of the season or, you know, even worse, we saw this change in heart rate variability or we saw this change in sleep patterns. Like, that that's the most extreme version of that. So we have the game within a game where, we, you know, we have the matchup and then, then we have the game underneath the game within the game. Wow. Okay. Well, that's something to chew on, I think. Um, and I think we can leave it there. Uh, but we do appreciate you coming by and talking about all this stuff again. And hopefully it does is not the uh, harbinger of an injury from one of our favorite players. Yeah, I mean, I there's nothing I've enjoyed more over the past uh, three seasons than watching Osuna pitch. And this is, I, I hope that any of these red flags that are coming up are, you know, just red flags and there's it's just smoke, there's no fire. Um I've pushed to say, you know, maybe if they think the wild card two is out of reach, maybe it's time to shut Roberto down for the season and make sure that he's around for the next two. I totally understand. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. And you uh, have yourself a good night. I will. And uh, I think I made it through this time without swearing. And (laughs) I got my swear in last. I got my swear in last time. And I'm I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) Take it easy. back uh you know it's tough to talk to him and not be a little bit what's the word worried i think is the word <laughs> yeah and then naturally as we're having the discussion osuna comes in for a four out save <laughs> yeah that's hardly gonna be a problem with his workload at all <clears throat> uh maybe maybe we won't think about that anymore we'll just go to uh go to the questions is that probably the best idea yeah of course I'm not going to go. Time now to hear from our listeners. <laughs> See, I knew that was going to happen. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? Never put any faith in Windows Media Player to do anything you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dave Church has our first question. At Dave underscore church. Again, once again, thank you for your patronage, Dave. Who has more starts for the 2018 Blue Jays? He asks, Tom Kohler, Mike Bolsinger, or Marco Estrada? Josh? I think it's Estrada. I really do. I think they're going to bring him back. I think he may have scared a whole lot of teams off, so I wouldn't be entirely surprised. Um, I'm curious, what's where is Tom Kohler? Did they p- manage to put him in AAA or something? They actually sent him to Dunedin because they wanted him just to be staying down there because he's pitching tomorrow, which will be Thursday, the day we're releasing this is game. He's starting in Tampa. So they're just like, well, oh. just go down there. Right. Don't take a flight up to Buffalo and back for whatever, for no reason. Yeah. Well, all the best to you, Mr. Kohler. Um, 
Oh yeah, they picked up Tom Kohler. <laughs> yeah, that was such a huge move. I thought we should start with it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least he's a big league starter. In name this season, yes. Yeah, in the past he has been the league average starter, which, hey, you know, I'd take that. Alrighty. I'm just going to move to the next question. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Connor Moore uh, at the Seahound. Uh, who is the greatest backup catcher in Blue Jays history? I have an answer for this. Do you? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Buck Martinez. Right, go for it. <laughs> not, not for any of his actual playing skills, but the man threw out two people with a broken leg, um, and then he spun that mediocre career into a seemingly endless gig on uh, television and radio. So Buck Martinez is the greatest. <laughs> now, well, it's funny <laughs> that my name, another guy who spun his career into television and radio... <laughs> Greg's on. Oh. Yeah. He was, he was so actually a good player, unlike Buck Martinez. Mm -hmm. And didn't have a stint as a horrible manager to throw in there and decrease his value. Though, now be honest with me here. If someone were to give him the reins of a major league team, do you have any doubt that he would be a horrible manager? <laughs> no, not, not, <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> so... In 2006, as a backup catcher, he hit 272 with a 363 on base at a 462 slugging. 12 bombs. You know what the problem is with backup catchers? Is if they're good enough, they're not backup catchers anymore. Yeah, so that's sort of what happened with that year. The Jays ended up just playing Benji Molina at DH a lot so that they could put them both in the lineup at the same time. Did they get the worst year of... No, it wasn't Benji Molina's career. Who's, who's, they no, got, Benji was great for them. Yeah, no, they got the worst year of... Um, he was a big free agent signing. Another Frank like, Thomas? <laughs> no, he was a Dominican no. catcher. Frank Thomas was actually good. Ah, he was, he was a Marlin too, and now I can't remember who he was. They had him for one year. It was literally the worst year of his career, and then he, he recovered after that, and I thought that's like... So Blue Jays. That name's going to be on Twitter, and someone's going to be going, come on, Greg, get get it together. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. All right, shoot me a question. All right, yeah, because John Buck was good with the Blue Jays, and he came from there. But Before All right. That. From Razorblade at Razorblade, what would Donaldson and Bautista's UZR or DRS be? <laughs> <if they'd... laughs> I'm doing it Canadian. If they played short and third, respectively, for an entire season. Uh, no, I'm just laughing because I'm just thinking about how those numbers extrapolate. Um, I know, but I just wanted to do it in Canadian. I want to make a point of that. Like, this is the UZR. <laughs> it's not UZR. Uh, they, they would... I, they both have to be negative double digits, I would think. Donaldson doesn't have... The, <laughs> Donaldson does not have... Okay, Bautista is already the slowest outfielder by the metric that we use to measure anything regarding to foot speed. I can't imagine what happens when you put a guy like that at third base. Um, and then yeah, Donaldson doesn't have the foot speed. He has the arm to play shortstop, I guess. It would be fascinating to see what happens to an infield for like the first two months when a guy who's not used to directing traffic in the infield has to has to do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he he positionally he could handle it. I think just in the sense of he plays there in shifts. You know, he can he, he could make the throws and know the angles, but the range the. the <laughs> leadership of the infield it would be a little bit of a challenge i'm thinking the numbers would not be good for either just like you yeah and he might actually hurt a little bit the other 
people on the infield by virtue of that too that's the weird part um all right richard hurley asks at the rg hurley uh please give me your best guess for the 2018 and 2019 jays scene season starting lineups <laughs> 2019 is like not <laughs> not not gonna try that one uh 2018 basically the same one they have now just instead of bautista there's like an anthony alford or a Teoscar hernandez or something like that in there I th- I, I, they're all under contract yeah i think well well tulo I, and martin would be back in it at least at the start of the season and yeah. travis too yeah and then smoke obviously you're keeping and donaldson is still available I think you Ross might. and Pierce are both under contract. I feel like you might see some of these people traded though, because there's going to be some holes to fill. But yeah, I could see one of Pierce and Morales going for sure, and the other one just sliding into the DH role. Yeah, for sure. Pierce has been still good, by the way. You know. Yeah, leadoff hitter today, <laughs> and hit a bomb. John Gibbons in the why not category again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and Luke at Split Letters has our final question. Uh, what are the odds that whatever team wins the wild card actually wins their American League Divisional Series? Better than you think. You know, they're going to be playing Houston, which I guess is the point of this question, and Houston's really good. But you know what? The Jays won some games against Houston this year, too, and the Jays suck. <laughs> so if a team comes through the wild card... You know, it's a five-game series. I could absolutely see a team pulling it out. I would say if you're you're probably in the 35%, 30 to 35% range. I would say much higher than that. I'd say 40 to 45. I'm just looking at the odds of a, uh, what is it? The odds of a, say, 90, what, 495 win team that Houston's going to end up being? beating essentially an 82 win team three games out of five yeah but just in in any given short series it's about 55 45 for an extreme favorite all right well then i'll i'll say yeah and there was one other thing that was a question it wasn't a question but it was tweeted at us this was pretty funny we didn't we don't have an audio or video of it but i gotta say this because it's hilarious it's just We've had some do-overs for the Blue Jays broadcast crew in the past. <laughs> so just during the first game of the Tampa series, I believe, Pat Tabler said it during a, during a replay, wow, even in the replay, that looks fast. It was a replay in real time. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't slow motion replay. And people say that there aren't a couple wobbly pops being consumed in the booth. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh, we have a real do-over, though, which I will launch thusly. Oh my god, did he really just say that? But we can try again, right? You talking about a do-over, baby? Are you talking about a f***ing door? We believe in second chances. Do we really believe in second chances for umpires? <laughs> no, no. It's a lie. <laughs> um, you remember we gave a gold star to Ian Kinsler for attempting to get egregiously fined for saying what is on everyone's mind about Angel Hernandez. Yeah. Yeah, it was a we good moment. thought it was great. The Empire's um, Union did not. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to say that uh, it appeared Major League Baseball was not really all that, you know, too upset about it either because they declined initially to fine Ian Kinsler anything for 
mentioning out loud how bad Angel Hernandez has been at his job for the past 20 years. No, they find him right away. They were just not disclosed. Ah. But they refused to, to suspend him, which is what drove the umpires union crazy. It's like, you didn't suspend him for saying all this stuff that was completely true about Angel <laughs> Hernandez? <laughs> so, uh, then we, we saw the, the much um, put-upon umpires union where, in protest, a white wristband. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, how tone deaf do you have to be? <laughs> like, do you really think about like what's going on in the world right now that you're going to stage a, a protest over people thinking that you're doing exactly what you're doing, which is constantly escalating situations and being bad at your job? Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because if you've ever read a umpire's autobiography or story i've read a couple of them ron luciano i think steve palermo and someone else and and they all wear the abuse of the crowd and the teams as a badge of honor in order to get up to the level of being a major league baseball umpire look what we had to go through and they talk about uh you know puerto rican winter league and they talk about mexican league and they talk about all these places that they went just to make a dollar to get experience and the horrible horrible treatment and abuse that they received and they wear it like that's much like greg zahn wears getting hazed and then now to be told hey you're no good you're not doing your job right is suddenly the great offense and they need to be protected from it it makes no sense at all yeah, and there was a comment, I think it was Joe West, who was wearing the white badge, and he was the first one openly doing it. I believe he said something about players not seeing them as authority figures, and, well, they shouldn't be looking at themselves as authority figures. They're supposed to be facilitators, and there's a huge difference between those two roles. Yep. So, I mean, that's kind of the crux of the problem. These umpires think that players should be kowtowing to them and bowing, like, oh, yes, sir, sorry, sir. That's not their role in the game. No, their role is to be fair and know the rules in the book. It's not actually much beyond that. It's There's nothing nobler about it, unfortunately, and there's certainly nothing high and mighty about it. Or there shouldn't be. So, uh, the do-over. What, what, what would we like the umpires to say, Josh? I think we'd like them to say that, you know, we, we didn't appreciate Kinsler coming out public attacking one of our guys. But, you know, we understand that the, the, sometimes tensions flare and hopefully things can be better going forward and then just get better at their jobs and stop baiting players. Yeah. And and for a group that was so hard done by, they still don't have to answer any questions if they don't want to when they screw up a game. Think about that. Yeah. And by the way, they protested in response to Kinsler not getting suspended when he got a $10,000 fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're the worst. Um, except that they're not the worst. There's something else that's the worst, I'm sure. Do you have a final thought, sir? I do. So we alluded to this right at the top of the podcast, about, or, or I did, about Rich Hill. <laughs> so Rich Hill had one of the greatest and then worst days you can have on a baseball field. For the first 24, I think it was he was perfect through eight. Yep. And then there was an error made in the ninth, but he was still had the no-hitter and the shutout intact. 
But the no Dodgers walks. did not. Yeah, no walks. The Dodgers did not score for him. And in the bottom of the 10th, the first batter he faced was Josh Harrison, who hit a home run. <laughs> so he lost a no-hitter, a shutout, a Maddox, <laughs> and the perfect game earlier. It's so, uh, all in one pitch. And it was really funny because the day before this, Doug Fister gave up a home run to the first batter of the game, and then the next 27 outs, there were no hits. It was really fun bookend to two days of baseball, which is just a weird, weird game. If, if there were still the wide world of sports, Rich Hill could b- both be the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat almost in <laughs> <laughs> just one picture. Oh, all right. I, I don't have a final thought other than, folks, it's, it's a bad baseball team. Just make your peace with it. It's going to be a long September because it's not going to be a very interesting one, I don't think. Uh, so that said, uh, you have been Joshua Housem at Joshua Housem. I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead 2010. Um, our guest was Dr. Mike Sun at Mike Sun. At Dr. Mike Sun. At Dr. Mike Sun. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was Artificial Turf Wars episode number 71. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>